Well, hey, uh, if you have a Bible, would you turn it open to Luke? Oh, I did that first hour too. I don't know how I'm doing this. We're not doing Luke. We're doing Isaiah. Luke is happening in January of next year. So anyway, um, Isaiah chapter 9. I, that's just super funny. I do know what passage I'm preaching, I swear. Um, Isaiah chapter 9 is in the middle of your Bible in, uh, in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 9. And uh, today is the official start of the Advent season. And Advent literally means uh, appearing or arrival. And uh, it, it's really a season about looking into the impact of Jesus arriving into our world and uh, and it's a it's a reality that is constantly obscured. It's obscured by uh, a world that is uh, constantly looking for the next thing to consume or the next relationship to fulfill us. And it's easy to obscure such a powerful moment that happened two thousand years ago. This this moment of God taking on human flesh and arriving in human history in Jesus of Nazareth. And so we are looking this Advent season at the kingdom Jesus came to bring. And how he has brought a kingdom without end. That, that many of the things that we run to in life are things with a short shelf life. That um, we, we crave for things like peace. We, we want things like love and joy and hope. And yet, oftentimes, we run to the shadows of those things, of things with ultimately short uh, shelf lives. And, and we think to ourselves, if I would have peace if I could just lose those holiday pounds. Right? Or I, if I could get him to just listen to me, I would feel love. Or um, if I could get that raise, I would know joy. And the reality is, all of those things are good things. It's probably good to lose the holiday pounds and for him to listen to you. And the raise probably wouldn't hurt. But the end of the day, those are all circumstantial things. And, and we've been doing this since we were young, right? Because when you're young, you look to the acceptance of your peers to give you a sense of peace. But all of a sudden, you grow past that, and your world gets bigger than your peers, and all of a sudden, they don't quite have what it takes to get the job done. Your soul needs something bigger to steady it. Later on, you begin looking for love, and uh, maybe you look for it in a close friendship, or maybe in a spouse. And so, uh, and we might feel it at first, but ultimately, ultimately, that becomes too heavy of a burden for one person to bear, to to supply all the love that we need, and it creates an idol out of that person, or crush that person, or crush you, and. And then the older you get, then you start to think, maybe if I have a, a career or a family, uh, that would supply me with joy. And, and so you, you look to your family, maybe, or, or that career, but then all of a sudden that family or that career uh, challenges your joy. The career becomes mundane, or the family just starts wanting a lot from you that is not something you want to give. And, and so uh, your kids or your job can't supply you with joy because... Uh, you can't really enjoy them for what they are. You need them to be more than they are. And so our hearts are left longing for peace and they want love and they want joy and we need hope. But we need those things in ways that transcend our circumstances, that go beyond what we can consume if we're really going to be satisfied. Are you with me so far? All right. And so um, we really want these things and we want them without end, don't we? And so we're looking at the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah, and we're going to be spending four weeks in the book of Isaiah looking at these snapshots, these pictures, if you will, of the Messiah and his rule, his kingdom, 
his reign, and the realities that he brings into the world with his reign. They're realities that are without end. He brings peace and love and joy and hope, these Advent themes, and he brings them to us without end. And so today, we're going to be looking at how King Jesus brings us peace without end in Isaiah chapter 9. I want to show you three things this morning in this passage. First of all, why we need a peace without end, and where to find it, and ultimately how to get it into our lives. So let's read the scriptures this morning, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. This snapshot of the Messiah who is to come. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past... He humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of Yahweh Almighty will accomplish this. This is God's word. So, first of all, why do we need a peace without end? Um, You notice Isaiah begins chapter 9 with the word nevertheless. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom right, for those who were in distress. Nevertheless, by the way, is not uh, a new thought. right? He's picking up on the previous thought. He's picking up on what he's just been saying. So what is it that has just come before? Um, Isaiah has this ministry in the south in the southern tribe of Judah. And he's in this place called Jerusalem, right? And it's kind of the center of worship in Israel. But it is a very dark time in the book of Isaiah and the the historical context. There are armies surrounding the city. uh, And the, the king, Ahaz, refuses to trust Yahweh, Israel's God. And so chapters 7 through 11 are this picture of um, the things that will happen in the immediate future in the historical context of Isaiah and the things that will happen in the far-off distant future for the people of God. And, And there's about to be devastation. Like the people are about to experience things getting worse before they get better and, uh, and there's these people who keep putting off God and God saying essentially it's going to get really bad. But there's also this promise that God would be with them. In chapter 7, there's this child, the sign, and he's called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so we're, there's this glimmer of hope and, and this people in Isaiah's generation keep rejecting it. And so at the very end of Isaiah chapter 8, he says this, he says, Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. And when they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking up, upward, they will curse their king and their God. 
And when they look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. It's kind of a gnarly picture, right? So at the end of chapter 8, he's describing the people who've looked up and said, like, we don't want you, God. And now they're just looking to the earth, right? This is this line. They look toward the earth and they see what? Distress and darkness and fearful gloom. Okay, Isaiah isn't talking about what happens after people die. He's talking about what's happening in their lifetime, that, that they're about to experience exile and captivity. And so distress and darkness and gloom, these are powerful words for us. These are very powerful words. They're the opposite of peace, aren't they? What's Isaiah describing? He's describing a sense of anxiety, isn't he? Like that's what darkness is. Anxiety is a good description of what darkness is like. See, darkness is not having any real sense of where you are and what's around you. It's to be consumed by what you don't know. Like I might trip. There might be somebody in the dark who will attack me. I might fall in a hole. I don't, I don't know. I might run into a bedpost. Right? I hate that. Like in the morning when you hit that. It's the worst. I might trip. And, and so darkness is that sense that I'm, I'm, cons- I'm enclosed by, I'm encircled by all that I don't know. And that's, this is what anxiety is like. It, it's to be enfolded by what-ifs, isn't it? It's to be completely surrounded by the what-ifs. What if he reacts poorly? What if my boss isn't happy? What if we lose the house? What, what if whatever you brought in this morning to fill in that blank? What if... And so he's saying when people look to the earth, they only get distress and darkness. When they end up rejecting God, they are left with the earth. And when we look to the earth, then there's darkness. And the first thing I want to show you this morning as we begin this Advent series is this reality of we, we need peace without end. Because the reality that Isaiah is pointing us to is that when we look to the earth, we come up with darkness. When we look to the political realm for power, when we look to a romantic relationship for ultimate comfort, when we look toward our money for ultimate solace, when you look to the things of the earth, Isaiah says you get darkness, you get anxiety, you get what-ifs, you don't get peace, you get distress, you get fearful gloom. And so we look to the earth, we don't get light, we don't get peace. Because peace isn't something that you can create on your own. Peace isn't something that you can come up with for yourself. And Isaiah is saying, look, it's really dark out there. See, this is part of why the Bible comes off so trustworthy, is because it's so brutally honest. Right? There's no fluff. This is not a hallmark theology that you will find in the Bible. It's honest with you. It says, yeah, it's really, really dark. It's so dark out there, and yet the hope of Advent is that there's a light. The Bible says, don't kid yourself. If you're thinking that it isn't light, dark, then you're just kidding yourself. You, if you can't see that it's actually dark, then you've bought into an illusion. But if you want proof that it's dark, go to the mall on Black Friday. Right? And you will find that it's really dark out there. And then as you judge all that darkness out there, you begin to see how dark it is in here. Because right? that's what happened to me on Black Friday. There was a bunch of darkness happening. And so the reality is... There's a nevertheless in Isaiah chapter 9. It's really dark out there, chapter 8, chapter 9, nevertheless. There's hope. There's a hope of Advent. The hope isn't that it's really just light out there. No, that's to deny the dark. 
The reality is it's really, really dark, but nevertheless. Listen to what he says. He says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Sounds kind of fun. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, he says. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So who are these people? Like, what's Zebulun and Naphtali? It sounds like a sci-fi character a little bit, right? But it's the northern tribes. It's it's two of the tribes of Israel, and they're the northernmost part of the land, up there by the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, And so they're the first people to get carted off into Assyrian slavery, essentially. The Assyrians come in, they're these really violent people, and they cart off all these people out into exile. And so they're the first to get smashed, essentially. And yet, on the other hand, they're the first to encounter the light because they're way up by Galilee and whose main ministry happens in Galilee? Like Jesus, right? This is the church answer. <laughs> I, think, I think it's a squirrel, but I'm going to have to say Jesus, right? Um, so we, we know that the, the light first dawns on them. They're the most humbled and yet they're also the most exalted because they're the first to get light. So what this this is saying is essentially, look, a light has dawned on these people. They've seen a great light. In other words, we cannot develop or generate the light for ourselves. We cannot develop or generate peace for ourselves no matter how much we try. It's the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. They haven't generated it. They've discovered it. It has to dawn on you. Peace has to come from outside of you. Now, Isaiah is saying, look, be honest about the darkness. It's dark out there, but don't despair over it and don't be anxious over it. He's saying, look, there's a nevertheless. It's always a nevertheless. That's the gospel. There's this light and it's dawned, which is interesting, by the way, and this is just one of those notes that I I just have to share with you. I think this is fascinating. At the time of Isaiah's writing, like, none of this has happened yet. Like, the people haven't gone all the way out into exile and the light... Of Jesus isn't come into the world, like we're still a long ways out from that, and yet he writes these words in the past tense. Right? He says, People have seen a great light. A light has dawned. This is past tense stuff. What he's saying is, although it hasn't happened in his lifetime, it's so certain that this reality of a dawning light is so sure that we can speak of it as a done deal. Why? Because it isn't the work of man, it's the work of God. And so we can speak of it as something already done. There is real peace and it's available, but it isn't something you can create for yourself, which is why we need it. And we we can't get it by the two main strategies in the world. And the, the Western strategy for getting peace is I acquire more stuff. If I get more stuff, I get more people to like me. I acquire, 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 consume, consume, consume. The Eastern approach to getting peace is I need to desire less, right? Empty, 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 empty. If I don't desire it, I can't be disappointed. Right? That's, that's a, a false piece. So is acquiring more stuff. Right? And so this season, you're going to be tempted towards those things. And so we have to be aware of the fact that peace doesn't come by either one of those strategies. Instead, he says, there's another strategy. You have to discover the light. You have to see the light. It has to dawn on you. Which leads us then to the next point, which is where do we find it? Where do we find peace without end? Look at what Isaiah is saying here. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, For in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke 
that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders and the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so Isaiah... He begins by referencing these two key moments in the life and story of Israel. If you go back to Judges, this is like super dark period in Israel's story. Basically, it's a lot of all dark periods in Israel's story until you hit like Jesus. Um, but then there's some pretty dark moments in his story too. So the reality is, you go back to Gen- or Judges, and there's this character named Gideon. Remember, and he he has all these armies, and he's trying to defeat the the uh, the Midianite oppressors who are kind of ravaging the land and God tells him to like send his soldiers away until he's only got like 300 guys to fight this huge army and then he miraculously God scatters the Midian armies and and then there's this other picture so there's a picture of God triumphing over our enemies and then there's a picture too of this the rod of the oppressor and the yoke of burden and this is this is a picture from uh, Israel's time in slavery to Egypt right that they're they're oppressed under slavery and so this light that's to dawn that brings a kind of peace that that is without end is is a light and peace that releases people from the forces that oppress them from torment and fear to subjection to the cruel and violent forces of evil it's a picture of god setting the world right and setting the world back to this word we talked about a few weeks ago which is shalom this this picture of the world as it ought to be a state of being as things ought to be and god is working shalom and so where do we find this shalom where do we find this peace? Isaiah says that, look, the oppressor's rod, and the, the, the yoke of burden, the warrior's boot are all destined for burning because there's a child that will be born. Right? For, uh, to us, a child is born. It tells us something. It tells us that you can set aside all the gear necessary for a hostile takeover. It's as good as fuel for the fire. You don't need to do that because a hostile takeover will not accomplish peace. This is what he's saying, right? Like the warrior's boot is useless in the economy of God's rule. Instead, peace without end comes through a child that's born. And not just any child, but a child who is actually God born as a human. This is, this is the picture of the Emmanuel in chapter 7. He's God with us. He uses that same language here. He is El Gabor, mighty God. He is, he is a warrior God. And so this son is given a government and he'll be, it'll be on his shoulders. I want you to just see the poetry of Isaiah here. This is amazing. See, he, see the yoke of burden goes from the shoulders of the people and it's lifted off and now the weight of government is set on the shoulders of the son that's born. Do, do you see the symmetry and the beauty that Isaiah is playing with here? And so this light that dawns, it isn't an idea, it isn't a philosophy. That's what the ancient Greeks were searching for, a new philosophy that, that uh, kind of helped us idealize the best life possible. And, and yet, that's not what this light is. That's not where peace comes from. It's what the Hebrews were looking for. It comes in a person who is a king and a ruler. That's what the Jews are looking for. And Isaiah is telling us that peace won't come if you just get a n- more information or a new life philosophy or a better diet or more stuff or if you get more people to like you he says that's not going to accomplish peace the only way that you're going to get peace without end is if you get a hold of a person or act more accurately if that person gets a hold of you gets a hold of your life 
And this picture of this person in Isaiah is, a, is the Messiah. And, and, it, and it, Isaiah is showing us that what we most deeply need is, is a ruler, is a king. Someone who, according to one commentator I read this week, has an empire, but without imperialism. Someone who uh, has a rule, but without exploitation. Who shares his endless fulfillment, bringing everything under his rule to perfection. That's what we need. And so this is why peace in the book of Isaiah is always connected to the one ruling. Uh, do this this week. Uh, if you have a concordance, you can, uh, which is like this reference of all the different words used in the Bible, if you have that, or just go on like Bible Gateway or Blue Letter Bible and just type in peace and do a search in Isaiah and read every reference to peace in Isaiah. And this is overwhelmingly about who's ruling. And so peace is a function of the one who is king. Isaiah 52 uh, is this great uh, passage where we get the word gospel, euangelion, right? And how beautiful in the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring tidings, who proclaim uh, salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns, right? So peace is a function of God being a ruler and reigning. And look at this description in the scriptures that we see of this Messiah king. He'll be called what? Wonderful counselor. He has like supernatural counsel. His counsel is wise. He's mighty God. He's a warrior king. Father of eternity. Like he has eternity in his hands. He's the prince of peace. Right? He's not the God formerly known as the prince of peace. He is the prince of peace. Like he is of his greatness Uh, and of his government and peace there will be no end he will reign from David's throne and over his kingdom establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever okay so does this sound like the kind of person who you make your personal assistant no like this is somebody with wonder and splendor and you, you you're in awe of this kind of person this is the kind of person that demands your allegiance Right? They aren't just somebody who gives wise counsel, but they rule with justice and righteousness, whose rule is forever and who installs peace without end. If we understand that our biggest problem goes back to a good creation that became disordered through rebelling against God's right rule, then we can understand and more fully grasp why God's solution to the problem is that he has to ascend to the throne. He has to ascend the throne of our hearts and of our world. And Isaiah says that this Messiah will reign from David's throne. This goes back to 2 Samuel 7, which is this promise given to David that one of his sons will rule forever and bring blessing, the blessing promised to Abraham, to all the nations. And, and so you, when you read through the Old Testament, you get these long stories about all these bad kings. You're just sitting there going like, When's this son going to come? When's this ruler going to set the world right? And all these guys are disappointing. And then you hit Jesus, and, and all of a sudden he, he starts enacting justice and righteousness. And he, he treats the oppressed and the poor with honor and dignity. And he, he receives the people who are the outcasts. And, and he topples the power players because all they're concerned about is their own power and pride. And so you get this picture of the kind of character 
of this king. And sometimes we struggle with the idea of surrender and obedience because when we hear about power and authority, we usually think of the corrupt versions we've seen. The, the, the angry father or the, the, the boss who's demanding without any grace or, or whatever picture it is that you've seen of corruption. But there's this Davidic son, the son who ruled righteousness, contrary to all of our experiences of bad power. Why does this all matter so much to a peace? I want you to think for a second. When was the last time you experienced deep peace? Was it because you had everything you wanted? Was it because your circumstances were so perfect? No. Like, and think of a time when you really lacked peace. Was it because you, you, know, you just didn't have the things you needed? No, right? It doesn't work that way. See, the message of Isaiah is that the greater God's rule is in us and increases in us, the more pervasive his peace will be in our life. We need a peace that can't be corrupted by our circumstances. And the only place that we can find that is in the person whose very essence is peace, so much so that he can be called the prince of peace, the one whose government and peace is without end. So don't run to new friends. Don't go running to uh, more transcendent experiences or more stuff to get peace. Go to the one who can rule you with peace. But how do we get it? This is where we, if you're a note taker, like pace yourself. There's a, there's a bit coming at you here. How do we get this? Let's get kind of practical about this. Okay, so, so we can't get peace on our own. Like, that's why we need it. We can't generate it or create it. We, we, we find it in the one who's given, the son who's given, who's a king. And we find that peace is a function of being ruled by the God of peace. But then how do we get that? How do we get it into our lives? Well, there's two parts to it. And the first part, um, Isaiah, Isaiah gives us a clue. He says... Um, to us, a son is given. In other words, to receive his rule and his peace means to receive him as a gift and to receive his peace as a gift. This means I can't accomplish it, I can't earn it, I can't achieve it. Uh, it's a, a, a function of grace. It comes as a result of his freely given, uh, completely um, unearned grace. So it starts there. And here's the trick. See, God comes to us in humility. Like, that's the story of Christmas. God comes in a vulnerable child, a baby, that can be rejected. And so God comes in person in Jesus Christ. And, and Isaiah is looking forward to this moment. And when Jesus came, though, what was his message? What did he say over and over? What was the predominant sermon audio clip of Jesus' ministry? The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is here. And so what is happening is God comes to us in humility and, and vulnerability, and that is how he establishes his rule, through the one who brings his kingdom. And, and the, re the reality is that if we want to have peace, it has to be received. See, peace is always the work of God. It's a gift he offers. Read Romans 5, 1 with me. Where, where Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified or made right through faith, right relationship with God, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And so peace with God has to happen first before we can experience the peace of God. So we get the peace with God by receiving his grace. 
That, that means saying yes to his love for us. It means saying, I agree that it's your free gift of unearned favor, your justifying grace, your forgiving grace that accomplishes peace with you. That it isn't something I bring to the table, it's something that you offer freely. I can't contribute to peace with you, God. I agree that it is from you, from your grace, from what Jesus has done and offered freely to me. And that's where I get peace with my Creator. It means recognizing that there was a problem to begin with, and it was a problem in me. It was me saying, I actually had one enemy before I was offered this grace. And I was opposed to God by rejecting His good rule of my life. But His free grace has made peace. Because we find that in Jesus. That Jesus Christ died on the cross. Colossians 1 says that his blood made peace. That that Jesus became the enemy of God in my place so that I could be made a child, an heir, a partner in his kingdom. See, the peace of God only comes when we have peace with God. Do you have peace with God today? Are you here as somebody who's been reconciled to him by his grace? It's freely given, unearned. Some of us uh, lack peace because we don't really believe this. Like we're Christians, we've, we've, uh, we've bought into the gospel on some level, and yet on another level, we lack peace in our life because we don't, see the significance of what peace with God has actually accomplished. And we don't actually believe that peace is a result of his free grace. And if we did, we, we would see it play out, wouldn't we? Let me show you how this works. Some of you are more anxious today over whether or not somebody likes you than you are secure in the reality that the God of the universe likes you. Right? You're, in, you're, in, you're in here today, and like the, the anxious thoughts are like, what if that person, like, uh, I don't know, I don't feel like they like me, and like this is undoing you. And yet, the God of the universe doesn't just like you, he loves you, and he's given his son for you. He digs you. Like that, he's, he's for you. You see that in Jesus. It's demonstrated. And some of you are undone here today with anxiety over the possibility of losing a job because it is your significance. Or the possibility of losing some role because it is your significance. And, and, and peace with God is something that gives you eternal significance. It's something that God has said, look, I, I've given you a significance that outlasts any job, any role. It's what Paul calls an eternal weight of glory. See, if you have peace with him, no other enemy can possibly undermine our security and peace that we have with God. See, if he's your advocate, what can any other adversary do? Do you see what I'm saying here? The peace with God is actually so important and so significant to your sense of peace that... Uh, we fail to recognize what the gospel has given us, we'll always end up with anxiety. See, the gospel gives us peace, gives us peace with God. That's the first part of how we get his rule into our lives. We have to have peace with God by receiving his grace. You have to take the gift and say, this is from you and it's free and I receive it. You have to have peace with God by receiving his unearned grace and saying, I'll take what you give 
And what you give wipes away the mess I've created and forgives and restores me entirely to the God of the universe. And it's available freely. But the second part of having peace in our life is, is, is moving from peace with God to experiencing p- the peace of God. Um, you have to receive the gift and then you actually have to use the gift. Anybody ever get a gift that you just like left in, in the box for the next year? Like white, next year's white elephant Christmas party, somebody's getting a puke brown PSU shirt. Like that happened in my life. I've given some really ugly gifts that I just re-gift, right? So don't give me an ugly gift at Christmas. Unless if you, uh, maybe it'll show up at your next white elephant Christmas party. So you don't, we don't leave good gifts in the box, right? We take it out. We use it. And so the good gift of the gospel is meant to be used and implemented in our life. And so uh, read with me in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Flip forward to the New Testament letter from Paul to the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. The first part about getting peace and his rule into our life is accepting his rule, his free grace, getting peace with God. But then we actually have to implement it to have an experienced peace with of God. Paul says this, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So if we have peace with God, the most fundamental an important factor in having peace in our life. If we have peace with God, then anxiety for us, in a very real sense, is something that is nonsensical to the Christian. And, and by that, I don't mean to say that if you have anxiety in your life, you're bad, or, or you're like you're completely messing up with Jesus, or that it's easy to push anxious thoughts away. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that if you're a Christian... Jesus is Lord of your life, you've received the free grace of peace with him, then you have a weapon that's stronger than any anxiety. And the reality is, uh, Oswald Chambers, um, kind of the great devotional writer of uh, uh, the previous century, said that anxiety is the unconscious blasphemy. It's It's his way of saying, essentially, like, God does not have a wise and good rule over my life. He's not the wise and good king and sovereign over my life. That that the the things I'm seeing and the situations I'm in have more authority than the authority of King Jesus. It's not always easy, but this is important for us to see that in every situation we have something stronger than anxiety. And that is the peace of God. Paul says that uh, those who have peace with God also have at their disposal the peace of God. This is something Jesus says to his disciples. He says, peace be, I give to you. My peace I give to you. This is God's free gift. 
And just to show the kind of grit and teeth that the peace of God has in the face of our anxious thoughts, he gives this word picture. Paul says it will not only transcend our understanding, it's beyond what we can kind of fit into our brains, but it's also something that guards your hearts and minds in the Messiah Jesus. In other words, this word for guard is this literally a Greek word for garrison. It's, it's like troops on the ground. It's the peacekeeping force on the ground. It is literally like army guys at your disposal, right, for your heart. I don't know, like, yeah, anyway. You get the word picture. It's a, like it's a troop garrison. He's saying, like, that's the strength of the peace of God. It guards your heart from becoming calloused, bitter, afraid. It guards your mind from nervousness and anxiety. And so... This is this protective power that the peace of God has. And Paul gives us uh, three very specific ways to implement the peace of God. You want it guarding your heart and mind? He says, like, then the, there are three things that you can do in this passage. Like, there's all of you who are looking for that practical application, walk out of here with something to do, people. Here you go. First thing that Paul says that we can do to, to work, uh, to, to move toward the peace of God, to get the peace of God permeating our life, he says, the first thing you need to do is you need to pray. To pray. You have to cultivate a life of prayer. He says, and don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, like, prayer. Prayer is an all-the-time kind of thing. It's not a special moment that, like a pastor does up front at church. It's like a conversational reality of a relationship with the living God where you relate your distress to God, where you talk to Him and you take time to listen for what the Spirit of God brings to mind, that the Spirit will bring the truth of the Scriptures and make them personally applicable to you. This is why what Pastor Dave said last week about the Sabbath rhythm, that weekly and daily we take time to rest in the presence of God. This is so important because this is what creates space to have conversation with God. And Paul uses four words here. He says prayer, general talking to God language, and then petitions, like asking for stuff, and then requests, which is like real specific. Some of us do this thing, and I hear evangelical people do this a lot. They, this is the, the justs of the justified. Just God, we just ask that you would just move in this one situation, that you would just bless us. Like, just stop saying just. It's okay. Just ask what you mean. Amen. Right? So we... Um, just say it. Like, be specific with God and say, here's what I'm looking for here, Lord. But here's the key. It's also to be done with a posture of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is interesting because how can you pray with thanksgiving for something that God hasn't answered yet? Ultimately, it's an expression of trust, isn't it? That I can come to the Lord with all these requests and petitions and prayer and I can say, thank you for hearing me. Thank you that whatever you do with this, it will be what's needed. It might not be what I'm asking for, but I can thank you uh, as advance submission to your good and wise rule in my life, that you will give what's necessary. It's a posture of gratitude. It keeps him from being a genie or slot machine God, but a God we, we thank and revere and worship. The second thing Paul says to do, the first thing is have a prayer life. Cultivate conversation with God. This is a relational thing that we do with the living God. Connect to him. The second thing you do is, uh, has to do with our thinking and our focus. It says focus your thinking. Paul says fill your minds with what? With what's true, 
with what's noble, with what's right and pure, admirable, excellent, worthy of praise. Think about that stuff. Right? So prayer helps us with this posture of relationship with God and intimacy with Him. And then a disciplined thinking helps us keep our minds on track with what's true. If anxiety is about living in the darkness and saying, oh man, all the what ifs, they're controlling me, Paul's saying, set that aside. Think about your thinking. That's what he's saying. So, so pray, but then think about your thinking. Some of us just think. He says, no, think about your thinking. Think about what you're thinking about. Okay? Am I thinking about something that's true? Where, where did I hear that? Where did I learn that? Is that real? Is it noble? Is it praiseworthy? Is it something that 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 is um, pure and lovely? See, our, our focus and our thinking when it's disciplined by the things Paul mentioned here is how God's rule grows in our minds. Our perspective and our attitude is changed when we focus on what's true, what's noble. See, anxiety is the devil's tool and it's powered by lies or half-truths. But the truth of God is this countermeasure and it has power to bring God's peace. And it requires some attention on our parts and some intentionality. I've got to think about what I'm thinking about. So first we've got to pray. and We have to think about what we're thinking about and think about the right things. And then the last thing Paul says to do is he says, whatever you have learned, whatever you've received or heard in me, put into practice. Do you, want, do you want the peace of God, peace without end, You've got to connect with God relationally. You've got to think about the things that are true that he reveals in his word. But you also have to do something with it. Paul's saying it's not enough to just have a nice prayer life and disciplined thought life. You actually have to do it. Right? Like you actually have to put into practice what Paul says you have seen or heard in me. Right? So we're taking the, the, the witness and testimony of the scriptures and the saints and we're saying... I'm going to put that into practice. I'm going to live out what I believe. Peace comes with obedience to God's will, not just knowledge of it, but obedience to it. And so praying and thinking and acting all contribute to this experience of the peace of God in the sense that the God of peace is with us. Peace is always just as much a function of obedience as it is to write thoughts and a robust prayer life. You can have a great prayer life, but if you're not putting anything into action, you're not going to get peace. You can know all the theology in the world and know the scriptures front and back, but unless those get lived out, it's just stuff in your head. It's not peace in your heart. Are you with me? Okay, so this is how we get it. This is how we get peace without end. We recognize we can't generate it. We need God's rule in us, and his rule is established when we receive his free grace peace with God and we, when we implement that gift we receive the peace of God and that's buoyant and that's robust and that's better than any anxiety so we're going to end our morning this morning is focusing on where we receive this we receive peace as a gift so we're going to come to the communion tables in just a second we're going to receive the bread and the cup one more time as a, as a reminder of the source of our peace Maybe you're here today and God has been at arm's length away for a good long time in your life. You've been in a season where God is at best an afterthought. And you're here today and you're finding your heart strangely warmed by Jesus. And you're finding yourself accepting grace. And you say, I want in. I want peace with God. There's no better way to accept that 
embrace that personally than to come to the table as this concrete expression of saying, I trust Jesus. I trust his death on the cross to establish peace for me and in me and with God. Come to the table this morning as maybe a first-time way of saying, I receive God's grace and his rule in my life because I trust him to be good. Maybe you're here today and you've been trying to earn approval and you've been striving and you don't have peace. Come to the table to remind your heart that his peace is a gift of grace. Maybe you're here today and you're walking in peace. You just need a refill and you need to be reminded again that that he fills you to be his agent of peace in the world to people who are in darkness. Either way, whichever person you are, would you come to the table this morning? If you want to be a follower of Jesus or you are a follower of Jesus in this moment, then come, receive the bread and the cup as a way of saying, I'm receiving his peace. Let me read Colossians 1, 19 and 20. The source of peace. God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile all things, whether things in earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. Father, we come to the table to receive again from the source that Jesus is our peace without end and we remember him crucified for us. We come to be reminded of Jesus as our source of peace with God and we come to be filled the peace of God as we submit to you and move toward you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Come and take the bread and the cup on your own as we worship together.